You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now turn in Holy Scripture to the book of Exodus. Exodus 16 and Exodus 17. From Exodus 16, we read the verses 1 through 20. And Exodus 17, we'll be reading the whole chapter. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat in the even, to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. The Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was still speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp, and when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. When they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Then turning to chapter 17, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, 
but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Text for this morning's sermon is Exodus 17, verse 15. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, person's life, the passage from cradle to grave, is often described as a journey down a road. We're often said to be traveling down the road of life. And in a sense, that's true for Christians as well. For us too, the road starts with the cradle. But it doesn't end with the grave. We look beyond the grave, convinced that life can last forever. If there is a destination we are traveling towards, well, that would be the kingdom of God in all its fullness. We're on our way to a life in God's presence without cares and concerns, without struggles, without hatred and disloyalty, without death and grief and loneliness. We've been promised a future dwelling place whose origin lies with God Our Savior spoke of it as the kingdom from heaven. Revelation speaks of it as the new Jerusalem that comes from heaven. And our journey to a renewed creation 
is often compared with the journeying of the people of Israel through the desert, from Egypt to Canaan. The patriarchs had received the promise that they would inherit the land from the Canaanites. It's often described in the Bible as a land flowing with milk and honey. And boys and girls, that's a way of saying that this would be a land with lots of luxury, where life would be good, enjoyable, satisfying, very different from the desert through which Israel had to travel to get there. Now, there are traditions of Bible scholars who consider this to be the primary or even the only importance of the desert narrative. Such scholars are not so concerned about whether Israel indeed traveled from Egypt to Canaan as a nation. There are many who dare to suggest it's a figment of the imagination to which people today should not attach historical significance. But Bible-believing Christians like ourselves will uphold the historical truth of the accounts we read in Exodus through Joshua. The exodus from Egypt, the journey through the deserts, the conquest of Canaan, they all have their specific place and meaning in salvation history. However, in stating this, we should not go so far as to deny the symbolical importance of the desert wanderings. That does happen, especially in our Reformed circles. We sometimes speak as if the significance of these accounts is purely historical. And songs such as Go Down Moses and Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho, they're then considered out of order because they allegorize the accounts. Now such songs are definitely one-sided, but they do make a valid point. There's a significance to the desert wanderings of Israel beyond that of an account of importance of important moments in redemptive history. That's what Scripture itself teaches us. Romans 15, verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The accounts found in the Old Testament were not just written to inform us, but to encourage us. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5, Paul describes some of the things which the desert generation of Israelites experienced. And the Holy Spirit then had Paul comment, now these things occurred as examples or types to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And these things happened to them as examples or types and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So there's a redemptive historical side to the accounts we read in the Old Testament. But there's also an exemplaric typological side to those accounts. And I'll focus on Exodus 17, verse 15 this morning. In the context of Exodus 16 and 17, we'll be taking that exemplaric typological approach. Exodus 16 gives us an account of something that happened in the desert of Sin. An event on account of which the place was called Massa, Meribah. And Exodus 17 recounts two events that happened at Rephidim. 
These accounts close with an act of Moses that was very important for the rest of the desert journey. He builds an altar, a monument to God, and he gives it the name Yahweh Nisi. In English, I'm there is my banner. That was the flag under which Israel marched en route to Canaan. And it's the same flag under which we march en route to God's perfected kingdom. So we'll listen to God's word summed up with this theme. We have the Lord as banner. We'll pay attention to the dangers as we travel, our security as we travel, and our commemorating as we travel. The dangers as we travel. The Israelites had gone through quite a bit by the time recounted in Exodus 16 and 17. Moses had become its leader, assisted therein by Aaron. Egypt had been struck by the ten plagues. Israel had escaped the grasp of Pharaoh by crossing through the Reed Sea. How the Israelites had sung and danced and made music on the shore of the sea. Sing to God, for he is high exalted. The horse and its rider he cast into the sea. But then, then came the desert crossing. With tens of thousands of people, with frail elderly people, little children, livestock. A desert, brown, barren, almost devoid of plants. Just rock and dust and, and bushes made of sticks. It was a good thing the Israelites had taken lots of food from Egypt. For the Israelites would have understood they wouldn't have been able to visit the market while in the desert. And no one knew how long it would take for the people to get to the promised land, especially as they would first have to stop by the mountain of God to worship God there. And then there came a point in time when the food was all gone. No bread to eat, no fruit, no meat. The cows and goats stopped supplying milk. It became quite obvious to the Israelites that they were facing some huge challenges, a real problem. There was no food. Little children asking for bread would have made parents edgy. The silent, empty stares of the elderly would have haunted the minds of the strong Chagrin was the order of the day. The people began to mutter and complain. <laughs> We'd have been better off as slaves in Egypt with filled stomachs than free men in the desert with empty stomachs. The desert proved torturous. There's tension in the air. For the Israelites blame Moses. You brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. On another occasion, the Israelites set up camp at the directions of the Lord Himself at Rephidim. But there was no water there. No water. By this time, the Israelites were receiving manna every day. But flour is not much good to you if you can't mix it with a fluid. Boys and girls, you ever tried that? Eating a mouthful of flour? That's horrible. And in the desert, where it's hot and dry, a body needs to remain hydrated. You've got to drink lots of water when it's hot. But there was nothing to drink. 
God had the Israelites camp in a place where there was no water. And then know what happened. The people grumble and complain again. In Exodus 17 verse 7, it is noted that at bottom the question was, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? That's a weird question. Had not the column of cloud and fire pointed out Rephidim as the place to set up camp? Was the cloud not there? A weird question. The Lord, Yahweh, I'm there. I'm present. The question was, is I'm there here? Is the ever-present one present? The people put the Lord to the test and quarrel with Him. Test and quarrel. Examples are types. Patterns in history from which we should take instruction, warning, and encouragement. How often doesn't it happen that people question the provisions of God? consider ourselves called to fulfill certain tasks, and then we wonder whether God has sufficiently equipped us for those tasks. That applies to physical things, food and drink, a job, decent income to feed yourself, your family, help out the needy, health in both a physical and a mental sense, to fulfill your responsibilities well. Our petition for daily bread can take the shape of a complaint. Lord, Why'd you put me here? Why aren't you giving me what I need? It can even reach that point of testing and quarreling. Lord, Lord, are you listening? Are you there? Life in the desert. Now, creation about us is not a desert. We should not consider our surroundings a desert, which we must endure but need do nothing with. No, we're stewards of God's creation. We have a task here on this earth. But spiritually speaking, we do live in a desert. Norms and values are not as God would like them to be. People are individualizing. Secularization and radicalization are the order of the day. Love and loyalty are lacking in many people's lives. And spiritual food and drink is offered but it is empty or even poisonous. There's so little sense of purpose in life and hence no real sense of fulfillment. Life is emptiness. But in the desert, it's not just what is lacking that's a problem. There are enemies as well. God has set has Israel set up camp at Rephidim. And at Rephidim, the people is attacked by a mob of bandits, the Amalekites. Bandits like those in the Sahara Desert, causing unrest in the Sudanese province of West Darfur. Cells of guerrilla who roamed the jungles of Colombia, of the Congo and Angola. Think of the Taliban in Afghanistan. In Rephidim, the Israelites were attacked by the Amalekites. Now, it's not really clear who these people were. Many Bible scholars think they're the offspring of Amalek, a grandson of Esau, the brother of Jacob. Others think that they are a people that already existed in the time of Abraham, for already then there was a country by that name. And from a redemptive historical perspective, the identity of Amalek is important. 
Was this attack by Amalek on Israel, a struggle between blood brothers? Or is it a confrontation between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? For our purposes this morning, it's not such an important question. The issue here is, while en route to the promised land, God's people are attacked. And God's people have always experienced attacks as they travel to God's perfected kingdom, persecuted by heathens and persecuted by the false church. In our context today, such attacks are often individual, usually very subtle. It may take the form of bullying in the workplace, being disadvantaged at university. And the enemies can also take a spiritual form. There's the devil and the temptations of our own flesh, our own evil desires. In the history of Israel, we can also think ahead to the account of the golden calf. It's not without reason that we pray God every day to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one. Traveling through the desert, there's no food, no water. Suddenly you're attacked. It happened to Israel. It happened to God's people throughout history. It happens to us today, physically and spiritually. And do we still want to journey on to God's perfected kingdom? Isn't it true that we too sometimes have that feeling, just let us die by the flesh pots of the world? It's no fun to be a Christian. Be more fun to not belong to the church. Isn't it true that we sometimes face those questions as well? Lord, are you indeed with us? Will we survive the attacks we undergo? Will we gain the victory? Do we grumble and groan? Test and quarrel? Or are we full of confidence, of faith? We come to our second thought, our security as we travel. Following the battle with the Amalekites, Moses builds an altar, calling it Yahweh Nisi. I'm there is my banner. And the name Moses gives to that altar has a special significance. We need to understand the word banner well. No doubt when you read the word banner, you think of a flag. Probably even a certain type of flag. You know, long and rather skinny. Although then again, the youngest among us will probably be thinking of websites and the top part of it. But in the days of Moses, there were no flags or banners. In those days, a banner was a stick, a pole. Think of a flagpole without the flag. Now to understand that, let me tell you a little bit of the history of flags and flag-like things. When, when soldiers would march into war in ancient times, the soldier leading the way would hold up his spear. And that spear would focus the attention of the soldiers on where they had to go. And over time, the spear became a kind of identity marker. In a battle, there's going to be quite a number of divisions of soldiers fighting. So how does a soldier know in the midst of battle where he should be? Well, he looks for his division's banner. Well, a simple spear is not going to work then. And that's when people started hanging things of the banner spear. Things called field signs or ensigns. Now, over time, the use of a flag, 
rather than a field sign spread west from India and China. And, and over time too, the meaning of the pole diminished. But when we go back to the time of Moses, the banner was no more than a stick, a pole. And such a banner, such a pole served primarily as a rallying point, as a focal point. Soldiers would look to the pole to know where they needed to be. And a raised pole would encourage them to continue to fight. A raised stick meant that they were being victorious. So a battle was often about making the pole come down. Just as in the game of Stratego, the idea is to capture your opponent's flag. So as such, the pole was not just a mark or indicator, it also had a message. It had something to say. The Lord is my banner. When Moses gave the altar that name, what I've just told you, that's at back of it. The Lord is our rallying point, and the Lord will make us come through and be victorious. The people complained. There's nothing to eat. No bread, no meat. The people complained to Moses and Aaron. Were they not responsible for bringing Israel into the desert? No, they were not. God was. And thus when Moses responds to the people, he points to the Lord. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Moses and Aaron had simply acted upon instructions from the Lord. Don't look to people for help. Look to the Lord. He is Yahweh. I'm there. Go to Him. The Lord is your rallying point. And so God Himself tells Israel, Then you will know that I am Yahweh. I'm there. You're God. The people complained there was no water. The people wonder whether the Lord is still among them. The people complain to Moses, and, and Moses is at his wit's end as to what to do. What am I to do with these people, Moses asks the Lord. They're almost ready to stone me. But the Lord provides for his people. Isn't he, I'm there? Masa Meribah, testing and quarreling, the people learned. God was indeed among them. The Lord is my banner. Look to the Lord. Focus your attention on Him. Realize His name is Yahweh. I'm there. God would see His people through. That was Israel's security during its desert travels. It's also Israel's security when it's under attack. All of a sudden, the Amalekites emerge out of the desert. A mob of bandits attack a huge group of shepherds. Quickly, a young man from the tribe of Ephraim is called upon by Moses to lead the people in the counterattack. Young man with a promising name, Joshua, Yahweh will save. Name which the true Savior of the world would also bear, Jesus. Joshua was a type of the coming Savior. And in a very practical way, Joshua organizes the Israelites into an armed force. And in the meantime, Moses... 81 years old, climbs up a hill, a piece of elevated ground from which he can oversee the battlefield and where he can be seen from the battlefield. That's probably even more important. For Moses has with him the banner of Israel, the pole 
that serves as rallying point and message bearer. It's his staff. So by name, Joshua focused attentions on the Lord as Savior, and by banner, Moses points to the Lord as giving the victory. But both are just people. While the banner is held high, while the staff of Moses points upward, Israel wins. But when Moses tires, Joshua and his troops lose courage and begin to lose. It's a good thing Aaron and her are on hand to help Moses out. Aaron, 84 years old. And in the Jewish tradition, her is the husband of Miriam. If so, he'd probably been around 90 years old. Three old men. Strong, but nevertheless old. On top of that hill, holding high the banner of Israel. Well, no. For for strictly speaking, the banner of Israel is not that pole, that staff of Moses. It's the Lord himself. Not the manna, not the quails, not the water, not Moses, Joshua, Aaron, and Hur, but the Lord, Yahweh. I'm there. He's the banner of Israel. He is the place around whom God's children gather safely. He bears the message of the victory. And that's true for us as well. We've been given brothers and sisters with whom to fight the battles of faith. We've been given office bearers to guide us, to comfort and encourage and admonish us. But when it comes down to it, it depends on God. I'm there will be our focus. Our security is the Lord Himself. Banner. Pole. Boys and girls, there's one pole we should be thinking of in particular. We usually refer to it as the cross. I'm there is my banner. Our Savior. The proof of God's unfathomable love was hung on a pole. Of this event, Isaiah prophesied, this is Isaiah 11, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. There's a line. There's a typological line that runs from the staff of Moses and the altar called the Lord is my banner to the root of Jesse who was raised as a pole. A line that terminates in the cross. And so we find in our text the truth we today confess with Lord's Day 1. My comfort, my security is that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. For on the pole we refer to as the cross, the battle of battles was fought. 
Sin was conquered. Death was conquered. Satan was conquered. And so we rally to the cross, wanting to know nothing when it comes to salvation, but Christ and Him crucified on that pole. Christ is where we need to be, and Christ is the message of salvation. Let's never forget that. Let's never forget that. Brings us to our third point, commemorating. Moses built an altar. Just as the patriarchs built altars as they wandered as strangers through the land promised to them by God. An altar as a monument. A special monument. For it's not just a monument to remember a past event by. It's also a monument for the future. It's a monument which in particular would remind Israel of God's presence during the battle with Amalek. It would also remind Israelites of God's oath to destroy the Amalekites for having performed this deed. This direct attack upon God's name would be avenged. A monument that would carry that message for some 800 years. For it wasn't until the reign of King Hezekiah and during the days of the prophet Isaiah that Amalek was destroyed as a nation. A monument with as name, Yahweh is my banner. In a more general sense, a confession dear to Israel the way Lord's Day 1 is dear to us. A monument to remind Israel of God's presence in the past and the promise of God's presence in the present and the future. A banner. A rallying point with a message. And in a sense, this monument was to Israel what the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper are to us. The sacraments are signs. They point us to an immense truth. They point us back to the banner, the pole, the cross of Christ. They point us forward to life gained in Christ and granted us through the Holy Spirit. A monument that will serve until the kingdom of God has come in all its fullness and Satan will have been defeated in every way. En route to God's kingdom, let's never lose that focus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We have the Lord as banner. Brothers and sisters, as we head out of 2010 and into 2011, as we ponder the times, appreciate that immense truth. The ever-present, ever-loyal Lord is our banner. Him we follow. Him we trust. God had Moses record the fact that he built an altar, calling it, the Lord is my banner serves as a warning and an encouragement to us. A warning. Make sure the Lord is your banner. Focus attention on the cross, for without the banner, all is lost. And an encouragement. For with the Lord as banner, with attention focused on the cross, the victory is ours. We are more 
than conquerors. And thus, as a hymn puts it, stand up. Stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high His royal banner. It must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, His army He shall lead till every foe is vanquished. And Christ is Lord indeed. Brothers and sisters, have faith in God, our banner. For He is Yahweh. I'm there. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.